please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, we'll read verses 28 through 32. The title of our message this afternoon is God for us, who against us? Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that golden chain that leads us to this golden panon of praise. Have mercy upon us. Teach and instruct us through these words, through this comfort, through this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. In review, we've been looking at the golden chain reaching from eternity past in God's foreknowledge and love for his people in Christ Jesus, predestinating them to be conformed to his image, calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light, justifying them freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus and glorifying them in due time. Now then, the apostle deals with our response to these truths. What shall we then say? Now the apostle has used this phrase previously. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1, just so we can see how he uses it. For one, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? What is the conclusion from what I've just said concerning justification not by works but by faith? What should we say concerning Abraham? Look at chapter 6, verse 1, a very similar phrase. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? When we sin, does not grace abound above and cover over our sins? What shall we say then? What's the logical conclusion? Should we keep on sinning so that more grace abounds? Is that the logical conclusion? What shall we say then? Look at chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Is it the logical conclusion that the law itself is the cause of our sin? No, of course it's not. So he's asking the question, what is the logical conclusion we should draw from these truths? What shall we say then to these things? What things? Well, in context, it's obvious. God foreknew us. God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. God called us in due time, justified us, and glorified us. What should be our logical conclusion to these things? Now, the larger context, 
you could say, is from the beginning of the epistle. Man is fallen and dead in sins, whether Jew or Gentile, universally condemned, and therefore he is shut up to be justified through the redemption that is in Christ, receive that by faith alone, by the teaching of the Old Testament, as well as the reasoning of the Apostle Paul, we see very clearly these truths. Then we see Abraham justified by faith, David justified by faith, God's grace abounding to us in the second Adam, where we fell in the first, we are raised by the second. We are freed from the bondage of sin, chapter 6. We have a new husband and fruit by him, chapter 7. We have per no perfection in this life, yet we have hope of glorification in the world to come, chapters 7 and 8. What shall we say to these things? And note here, if God be for us, that is, if God for us, he leaves out the word be, to jar the attention in the mind. If God for us, if God on our side, if God is our benefactor, as this word means, the one who does us good, who stands and gives and ministers good things to us, if this is the case, that God is the one doing all this good for us, who can be against us or who against us? Please open to Genesis chapter 15 for this theme of God for us, who against us. Abraham was promised a son. Abraham did not receive a son. Abraham began to despond that he would ever have a son and an heir. This is where we find him when God comes to him in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Who's going to defend you, Abram? I will. Who's going to give you wealth and riches? Who's going to bring you at last to the heavenly kingdom? Who's going to glorify you? Who's going to be your reward? I am, Abram. In the midst of his suffering and despondency, God says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Please turn to Psalm 27, page 602. God for us, who against us? Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, in this will I be confident. Do you know that David actually experienced these things? In his own life and person, he had war surrounding him several times. Armies of Saul and his chosen men chasing him down like a dog. God was his light and his salvation. He did not need to be afraid. He served an almighty God who was on his side as his shield and as his exceeding great reward, as his strength for his life. 
Look over at Psalm 118. Much the same theme sprinkled throughout the Psalms. Psalm 118. Look at verses 5 and 6, if you would, please. Psalm 118, verse 5. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? You see, David wasn't reliant upon his own capacity his own manly vigor, his own capacity to fight or to outplan, no. Did he fight? Did he have manly vigor? Yes, he did. Did he rely upon them? No, he did not. The Lord, he says, is on my side. There's no reason for me to fear. There's nothing that man can do to destroy me. There is no creature, as we shall see, heights, depths, angels, principalities. There is no, nothing within the order of creation that can separate us from the love of God. Open to Isaiah 50, please. Page 750 of your pew Bibles, Isaiah 50. Starting there at verse 7. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? We'll look at this next week, God willing, in Romans 8. Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Garments do nothing against us. Garments are eaten by moths. And so he says, all my adversaries that rise up against me will be destroyed and wasted away. There is no strength in them. Turn over to chapter 54 of the same book. The prophet Isaiah, verses 11 through 17. Starting there at verse 11. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, 
And I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Notice here, God promises blessings upon blessings. And who ordinarily would come against the blessings of your peace? of your home if you had windows made of valuable gold and silver carbuncles and topaz and diamonds do you think people would leave you alone no everybody would line up to come and raid your house but notice what God says though you have all of these jewels though you have all of these pleasant stones that I'll lay the foundation of your home in pleasant stones. Do we use valuable stones when we lay the foundation of a house? Of course not. We use things of little value. Why? Because we don't need anything of value there, but God puts it there. All this value invested in this house and you will have peace, he says. Why? Well, who created the smith? Who is it that gave him the knowledge to make swords and weapons? Who is it that has power to rule over the weapons of the earth? Who is it that made wasters to go out and destroy kingdoms like Nebuchadnezzar? Who did that? God did. So then he says, I who formed this man and that man and all that you fear, do you think I don't rule over them? Do you think I don't have power to stop them from destroying you? Thomas Aquinas comments, if God is for us by predestinating, calling, and justifying, and glorifying, then who is against us? That is, successfully. Do we have people that oppose? Of course. Do we have people who would want to steal if we had such a house? Yes. But God rules over all things and orders them for our salvation. John Chrysostom, these that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings. What do they think? I'm going to bring a curse on you. What do they actually bring? A blessing upon you. They procure our countless blessings in that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. I note then this doctrine. For God's people, there is no power that can overcome us. For God's called people, there is no power that can overcome us. God is our shield and our reward as he was to Abraham. God is for us, who against us? No weapon formed shall prosper. The Lord is on our side, we will not fear. What can man do to us? The Lord is our light and salvation, whom shall I fear? Has not God made the smith? Has he not made the waster to destroy? Has he not made and rules over all the things that we would fear? Of course he has. So then, why need we fear? God for us, who against us? Who can undo our salvation? No, they'll come against us 
but it will procure countless blessings for us. They shall become the causes of our crowns, as Chrysostom said. In exhortation, then, take heart, beloved. We will conquer. Take up this shield to repel all doubts, all fears, and in the midst of all adversities, put your confidence in God's almighty hand. He will save us. Give thanks to him for what he has already done and hope in his work yet future. Augustine compares this passage in Romans 8 to steps. God's brought us along on these steps. He says, look back and give thanks for the steps in the past and look forward with hope that God in his great power will bring you the rest of the way. John Calvin comments, his favor alone is a sufficient solace in every sorrow a protection sufficiently strong against all the storms of adversities. Do you know when people generally fall away from the faith? It's not often in times of prosperity and people are applauding them and supporting them and encouraging them. When is it? In adversity. When things are hard. When things are tough. When the winds and the waves beat against us. When those who ought to cheer us encounter us with a frowny face, when those who ought to say, well done, say, stop it or I'll kill you, persecution we'll look at in Romans 8. The magistrate ought to say, oh, you're serving God? I'm going to encourage you. That's my job, to praise them that do well. But sometimes the magistrate says, I'm going to kill you if you do well. Persecution, famine, nakedness, Peril, sword, God for us, who against us? His favor alone, a sufficient solace in every sorrow. You know what a solace is? You're all by yourself. There's no one to comfort you, no one to help you, no one to say, I'm so sorry this is happening. Who's there? God for us. Who against us? Please turn back to Romans 8 if you would. Verse 32, how do we know God for us? Verse 32 tells us, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? First then, he that spared not his own son. Now there are those who spare to spend, we call them spendthrift. They will not spend their money. They'll hold it tight. And often that's a very good thing. Sometimes that can be a sin if a person goes to excess, but that's a very good thing as a general rule. Sometimes wolves come in among sheep and they do not spare the sheep. They don't set them aside and say, well, I'm not going to kill this one. They kill them all. Here we are taught that God's grace spared no expense he did not spare his own son, his own beloved son. He did not spare him. But what did he do? He delivered him up for us all. Please open to Matthew chapter 20 concerning this word delivered up. Matthew chapter 20, we'll read verses 18 and 19, page 984 of your pew Bibles. Delivered up his son. 
we're going to have a lesson in delivering up that God in his providence has designed. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples as they go to Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be, look at it, betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall, look at it, deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him and the third day he shall rise again. This is the same verb. God is said to deliver up his son. Guess who else delivered him up? Well, Judas Iscariot did. To whom? To the council of the elders. And what did they do? They delivered him up to Pontius Pilate. Look at Matthew 26, please. Page 993. Jesus prophesied, and so it came to pass. Verses 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said, What will ye give me, and I will, what? Deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. Look down at chapter 27, verse 1. Page 995. And when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away. And what did they do? Delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Exactly as our Lord said, delivered up by Judas, delivered up to the Gentiles. Exactly as he had prophesied. Look down at verse 24 of the same chapter. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing... But that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Who is the he? was Pontius Pilate. Judas Iscariot delivered him up. The council of the Jews delivered him up. Pontius Pilate delivered him up. Please turn over to John chapter 19, verse 30, page 1090 of your pew Bibles. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and what did he do? Gave up the ghost. Same Greek verb. He gave his life up. He gave up his spirit. He gave himself, Romans 4.25 says, for our sins. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, our Lord gave up his own spirit to death for us. Look at verse 20, if you would please, page 1175 of Galatians 2, verse 20, page 1175 of your pew Bibles. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, 
but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And what did he do? Gave himself for me. Jesus Christ, our Savior, gave himself up. The Father in heaven delivered him up for us all. Judas, the betrayer, gave him over to the council. The council gave him over to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate gave him over to the public hangman. Do you see the wisdom of God in this? God designed all of these betrayals and giving over and handing up so that his son might freely take upon himself and give himself up. You think he couldn't have stopped the Romans or the temple guard that came for him? Do you think he couldn't have stopped thousands of soldiers with one word from his mouth? Of course he could have. He gave himself up. He delivered himself up. The Father delivered him up for us all, he says. Peter Martyr contrasts this. What would you do if your child was kidnapped? And somebody left you a note and said, I want $20,000 and you can have your kid back. You think you'd pay it? Every parent in their right mind would pay it. They do whatever they could do to get that money together to redeem their child. Do you see what God did? Doomed rebel enemies fighting against him, dead in trespasses and sins. What does he do? He delivers up his own son. He does not even spare his own son. Fathers, Martyr says, will not stick to spend all that ever they have to redeem their children. But God, contrarywise to redeem us, hath delivered his own son. This is love. This is what John was talking about. He gave his son for us. And then the apostle asks, let's turn back to Romans 8, please. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is the Greek word pos. How is it possible? How could you conceive in your mind that God would do this great work of delivering up his son, and yet, you know, there are these lesser things you've got to earn on your own. All these things down here, that's your responsibility. You work it out yourself. I'll help you if you ask me to, but you do it yourself. Is that what he says? No. How is that even possible to conceive of? How shall he not with him, since he gave us the greater, what about all the lesser? Is God going to forget about that? No, he's not. The father gave us his son. How could he possibly refrain from adding everything else we need? And to do so freely, he says. This word freely give is one word in the Greek. It's the word grace, the noun charis, turned into a verb, to charis, to grace. God graced us his son. Will he not grace us everything else? All the benefits that come in the testament of God, 
of which Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and we joint heirs together with him of God and of all those benefits, do you think he's not going to freely give us all those things? David Piraeus comments, this is opposed to human merits. God gives freely whatsoever he gives. For who has given to him first that he should repay him? Therefore, the merit of congruity and condignity is perpetrated by hypocrites. You know what the merit of congruity is? Well, it's not exactly a repayment of wages, but it's kind of like that, where it's congruent, it's, it fits with this. And then condignity, well, the work itself, is, it has this dignity, so God rewards the work with this dignity. This is what the hypocrites teach about how people are called effectually by the gospel. God looks down and says, well, you are worthy. You have a merit of condignity, and so I will give you these further graces because you've earned the first grace. Is that how God works? Is that what he did? No. God freely gave us his son, not because we deserved it, because we deserved the opposite. He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. And with him, everything else is freely given. Behold the abundant grace of God. God has graced us, his son himself, freely given him to us, what did we pay? What was the price without money, without price, without works of righteousness? In his abundant mercy, lavishing his son upon us, then what else? Then the spigot turns off, no more water for you. No. All things that we need. God freely gives these things without money, without price all beside his son, all the benefits that come along with Christ, he gives freely. Let us then glory in the free grace of God. Let us rejoice in Christ's work in us and for us. Let us rejoice in all the accompanying gifts of God. God for us, who against us? I note then another doctrine our salvation is not a stingy thing on the Father's part. Some might conceive that God reluctantly gives salvation, so they're always talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Is Jesus the center and focal point? Is he the one who died for our sins? Yes. Did the Father say, well, if I must, I'll give him up? No. He did not spare him. There was no stinginess. He freely gave his Son for us his treasured possession, his only begotten son, he gave him up. No stingy thing on the father's part, but generous and abundant. He gave us all things together with Christ, all things needful for life and godliness, for time and eternity, for body and spirit, for the first and the second table, for your personal life, your family life, your church, the state, your business, for your friends, for your enemies, for prosperity, for adversity, for enemies human and demonic, for enemies foreign and domestic. God has given us 
all things together with his Son. Let us then glory in God's generosity. Let us pray for great things that God has freely promised us in his word. This is what we'll look at this evening. What has God said is his will? He's revealed it to us. We know what he said we can pray for. And he says, if you pray according to my will, you have the petitions that you ask. Let us pray for the great things that God has freely promised in his word. And let us, listen, let us learn to reflect God's grace and his abundant goodness in the love that we have for our brethren in Christ. That's what John was saying, wasn't it? In 1 John 4. God has so loved us, so we ought to love our brethren. God has been so gracious and generous with us that we ought to reflect that grace and that generosity toward our brethren in Christ. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And thus far, the consideration of God's holy word from Romans 8, 31 and 32. 